This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast, where host Amber Cullum and her guests delve into hard truths and the unwavering grace of God while journeying in the kingdom of God here on earth. Listen every week at graceenoughpodcast.com or on your favorite listening app. Welcome to the Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to the Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Mikel Del Rosario. I'm the Cultural Engagement Manager here at the Hendricks Center. And our topic on the Table Podcast today is, Is Christianity Relevant, Rational, and Good? These are three questions we're going to be walking through. It's, it's a, it represents a variety of kinds of questions that people ask today. And my guest on the show is Kenneth Samples, coming to us all the way from sunshiny Southern California. Uh, Ken is a senior researcher at Reasons to Believe. He's also an adjunct professor in the apologetics program there at Biola University, my alma mater. Welcome, Ken. Good to be with you, Mikkel. It's nice, nice to get a chance to talk with you. Yeah, I think last time we were together, it was pre-pandemic San Diego. That's right. Evangelical Theological Society meetings. Um, good to connect with people at, at uh, Reasons to Believe, including Fuzz and others uh, who we've had on, on our broadcast before. Well, I just want to start by having you introduce yourself a little bit. Tell us about your role at Reasons to Believe. Yeah, this is my 25th year at RTB. Um, I'm kind of a, a bit of an oddball on the scholar team because I'm a non-scientist. I work with Hugh Ross, who founded the ministry back in 1986, but have a number of other colleagues in in different disciplines of science. So, RTB is uh, a science faith apologetics, but I try to provide uh, some support in terms of theology and philosophy. So, today you are a public advocate for the Christian faith, but it was not always so. Uh, Tell us a little bit about your journey to faith. Yeah, well, my parents uh, converted to Catholicism in the early 1960s. They were evangelicals, but they embraced the the Catholic faith. I was baptized as a four-year-old at uh, St. Athanasius's Parish in Long Beach, which is a suburb of L.A., uh, I kind of had a nominal Catholic faith, I think, growing up, uh, but when I w- was in college, uh, I was really searching, I was really looking for, for answers to um, personal meaning for myself, what life was all about, began studying philosophy, the big questions of life, uh, and I would say through uh, really kind of providential uh, things in my life, I became very interested in Christianity my sister gave me a book by C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. I was so pleased that a Christian could think so carefully, lay out the faith uh, in a way that I thought was reasonable. And uh, so, I, I came back to the Catholic Church. Um, uh, later, uh, I became an, an evangelical Protestant, uh, but I, uh, God's grace has been very rich in, in my life. Well, that's amazing. Yeah, and it's, it's so interesting how sometimes you see people who you think, uh, you know, maybe they're, they're, um, there are these hurdles to faith. Yeah. And you think that they're never going to get uh, beyond those hurdles. 
right? <laughs> the Lord works in their lives through them studying evidences for the Christian faith, a friend who's able to share with them some evidences for the Christian faith. And then sometimes, you know, the most unlikely people in our minds, at least, you know, actually make a decision to trust Christ, not unlikely in God's mind, because he had them all along. Uh, I knew where they were going to end up, but um, I'm, I'm glad that you have put together in a little package this uh, this book called Christianity Cross-Examined, that the subtitle is, uh, Is It Rational, Relevant, and Good? Because over the past 30 years, you've been working in apologetics, you found um, some of the questions out in the public square evolving a little bit. Um, tell us about that. Yeah, I think if I went back, uh, my first uh, work in apologetics, I worked with Walter Martin at the Christian Research Institute. And in those days, I was interested in new religious movements. And when I would go to the colleges and universities, um, I would say virtually all the questions in those days were what I would call truth questions. Does God exist? Is Jesus the Son of God? Was he raised from the dead? How can Christianity be true in light of all these religions? Uh, moving forward, however, I've worked at Reasons to Believe uh, 25 years. I would say about uh, 15 years ago, when I went to the colleges and universities, I noticed that there was a change in apologetic questions. I still get truth questions, but students were often interested in whether Christianity has been a good force in the world. And they have particular questions about whether God was good, whether the God of the Old Testament was compatible with the person of Jesus. And so uh, I would propose we've kind of moved from questions that philosophers would call from modernism to postmodernism. And I think in our culture today, we not only have to give reasons why Christianity is true, I think we also have to give reasons why Christianity has been and is a good force in the world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's so true, because for many people today, they won't even be asking the question, is God real? Is Jesus who he claimed to be? Is Christianity true? Those kind of truth questions. And then they're, until they're even uh, convinced that Christianity is a good thing, like, why should I even want that to be good? And yeah. so oftentimes now they start with the, we start with this, this conversation about the goodness of Christianity and its relevance um, before people will, will you know, begin to ask questions about its truthfulness. I know regardless of whatever presentation I'm giving at a church, if it's about the problem of evil, if it's about the resurrection of Jesus, Q&A time comes and someone will say, yeah, but how do I relate to my gay friends? Yeah. Or, but what about my Muslim neighbors? Um, or the, these uh, questions of gender, sexuality, these kinds of things that are in the, the public square as the hot topics of discussion. How can we go from, from life to the Bible. So, Ken, you mentioned that you speak regularly on college campuses, and let's just walk through these three areas that you uh, talk about in your book. Is Christianity rational, relevant, and good? And let's start with the first category, rational. This is kind of the traditional apologetics that we, we most often hear about. Um, but today, what do you, would you say is the top question in this rationality category that you get on college campuses? Yeah, certainly when people ask questions about Christianity's rationality, they're going to connect it to science in some way. Um, I remember in 2017, the most Googled question about God was, if God created the world, who created God? Hmm. Um, 
that's an interesting question. I, I, I would piggyback on that, though, Mikkel, and say a lot of people think that modern science has kind of made God unnecessary. So that early part of my book, I try to focus on Christianity's relationship to science. But, I, but in that context as well, I talk about Christianity's relationship to, to reason and rationality. Um, uh, but I, I, I think probably science is still a very important question when it comes to Christianity's rationality. Mm-hmm. So how would you answer the question, if we have science, and I want to follow the science, right? So why yeah. do I need God? Yeah, <clears throat> I would say, for example, that if you look back to the early part of the 20th century and you uh, took into account what many of the secular scientists were saying then, so I'm talking about Einstein, Eddington, talking about uh, Hoyle and Hubble, all of those secular scientists, and they were all outspoken, they, and of course, this is the backdrop of Darwin. This is a very secular period. Um, all of them thought what we would discover is a universe that is maybe just a brute reality. Maybe the universe is all there is. Uh, they thought there was no need for God. God was a concept that uh, maybe was created by human beings, but it was no longer necessary. I think, Mikkel, however, if you look at science in the 20th century, what you begin to see is that what these secular scientists thought they would discover, they didn't. They thought they would discover, for example, a universe that was a brute reality, had always been there. And what came out of that in the mid-20th century is what we call Big Bang cosmology, that matter, energy, space, and time, the universe itself appears to have had a singular beginning from nothing. And of course, uh, Hoyle, who is the who is the scientist who, who named it Big Bang, he said it in terms of derision. Well, if the universe had just banged, if it just came into being, does it then need a cause? And you can look at other areas, uh, the parameters of the universe, uh, fine-tuning in the universe, and, and even human uh, consciousness and human exceptionalism. By exceptionalism, I mean humans appear to be different than the other animals, uh, not merely in degree, but in kind. Mm -hmm. And I think what we've seen in the 20th century is that when we look at these scientific mysteries, uh, they point to God rather than pointing away from God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's interesting when the Big Bang Theory was first discussed, a lot of uh, naturalistic scientists were the ones pushing back on it because it seemed to line up actually pretty well with the Christian worldview's idea that God created ex nihilo from nothing. Right. Um, that's not normally today. A lot of people just equate that with, you know, the Big Bang Theory with naturalism, whereas um, actually it's um, something that, that secular scientists were actually kind of cautious about because they, they thought it was too close to Christianity when, when they were first looking at it. That's exactly right. Yes. So talk a little bit about how the Christian worldview uh, grounds scientific inquiry. Yeah, I think this is very important. Mikkel, a lot of people think that science is kind of an enterprise that works independent of worldview ideas. 
But that's a deep mistake, I think, in thinking about science. Uh, Science has certain assumptions. Science begins with certain beliefs about the nature of the world, the nature of human beings. Uh, For example, to do science, there has to be a real world out there. It can't be illusory. Uh, It can't be, uh, you know, uh, Maya in a Hindu sense. There has to be a real world. That real world has to have uh, certain qualities, uh, regularity. Uh, You have to be able to trust the laws of physics. You have to have confidence that there are these natural laws. You also have to be able to trust that human beings have a a brain and a mind and sensory organs that operate uh, pretty reliably. Moreover, you also have to be able to trust math and logic. Uh, so there are a lot of assumptions, and when I talk with scientists, they o- I often ask them, why does science work? And, and sometimes they're, they kind of uh, are unsure. They just say, I don't know, it just does. But I like to emphasize that these philosophical presuppositions are what ground science. And some Christian thinkers Uh, have proposed that uh, maybe science wouldn't have begun in any other worldview than Christianity because Christianity provides kind of the philosophical framework for science working and being being a good enterprise. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, there are some Christians who take the time to study some of these uh, philosophical arguments and scientific uh, arguments, and then they present them to their friends who are who are scientific people. And this has happened to me, where I talk to somebody, and you know, they they start with like, I guess you just have to decide what you want to believe, huh? God or science? And then I talk about you know the the Kalam cosmological argument or whatever um, to try to show that science isn't incompatible with the idea of God, and that there might be good reasons um, even for a scientific-minded person to consider the idea of God. And then at the end of the conversation, they just go. Oh, I guess you just have to decide what you want to believe then, science or God then. Um, talk about some of the non-worldview, um, or rather some of the non-rational reasons, the worldview reasons that uh, some people aren't persuaded by this evidence. Yeah, well, I, I, think, that's a, I think that's a great question. I mean, I, I talk with secular people. Uh, I, I regularly talk with secular people who have real admiration for science. They think science is the way of knowing about the world. Um, Again, I like to point out to them that for science to operate the way it does, you have to have the right kind of world. You also have the right kind of human observers, scientists, and then that right world and, and right human beings have to be connected together. You know, when intelligent people want to solve problems, they appeal to logic, they appeal to mathematics. Well, um, the Christian worldview, I think, does a really good job of bringing those together. Um, and, and I would propose, again, in a more practical context, that Christianity has had a very close relationship to science historically and and philosophically, but people make up their minds for a lot of different reasons. I mean, a lot lot of people are not aware that, you know, there are are rational reasons for believing something. There are irrational reasons for believing something, but there there may be non-rational. We may have certain pre- you know, we may be predisposed. We may also be biased, um, you know. So, 
I think kind of talking people into apologetics, we have to be careful that we don't fall into the category of thinking that if we just kind of pour facts and reasons over somebody's head, they're going to become a Christian. Yeah. Uh, I think the critical factor is the Holy Spirit's work in a person's life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes people will say, well, I'm just not persuaded by that. And then Christians go, well, this is so persuasive to me. Why, <laughs> why don't you get it? Um, and then I tell them that persuasion is always person relative. And so, exactly. yeah. what might be so convincing to you, that might not be the convincing thing to somebody else. And that's okay. Um, we're all yeah. different pe- kinds of people. Um, but the Holy Spirit can use these arguments and evidence. And uh, as part of someone's spiritual journey, um, those can certainly play a role. Um, how would you advise a Christian to work through what they might see as a conflict between science and the Christian faith in their own life? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, I, I think um, I think really recognizing, um, you know, we hear the expression "follow the science," um, and then we see that scientists disagree with each other. I, I think being aware that um, scientists are like everybody else; they have their strengths, they have their biases, they have their perspectives, and it, as you point out. Uh, persuasion is person relative. I would, uh, I think my recommendation would be to, to, to become very literate, that is read really good sources about science, read a spectrum of opinions, realize that secularists and Christians and Hindus and Buddhists, uh, people come from different points of view. Uh, But I would say this, Mikhail, I don't think Christians need to be afraid of science. I think science is an extraordinary enterprise. It has limits. We shouldn't exaggerate the role of science, but I I also think we shouldn't ignore it. And so, some good, good study in the area of science can be very helpful. And we have some very distinguished scientists who are Christian. Um, My uh, boss, Hugh Ross, is a very good example of that. Would you say it's it, it's fair to say that the vast majority of science, quote unquote, the body of scientific knowledge, is actually um, not in in even perceived conflict with the Christian faith? But there's only a small sliver of scientific inquiry which uh, either our our perception or our understanding of that might be in conflict with our perception of the Bible, or vice versa. I, I think the 20th century has indicated that the universe appears to have a beginning. That's pretty consistent with Genesis, I would say, that human beings seem to be exceptional. Um, we're made in the image of God, after all. Uh, the universe is fine-tuned. We call that design in a Christian context. Sure, there are areas. Um, evolution remains a question. What about human origins? Where did humans come from? Uh, were we created directly uh, uh, or was there some type of evolutionary? I think you're exactly right. There's a lot in science that I think uh, bro- robustly supports a theistic or Christian view. There remain issues of, of debate, but uh, I think overall, Christianity and science have, have been historically allies, not enemies. Mm-hmm. This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast. I am its host, Amber Cullum. Each week, I sit down with a guest to discuss hard truths and the unwavering grace of God they've experienced while journeying in God's kingdom 
here on earth. You'll hear from guests like Jen Wilkin, Jamie Ivey, Andy Crouch, and Scott McKnight. Listen to these conversations and more by searching Grace Enough Podcast on your favorite listening app or by visiting graceenoughpodcast.com. Yeah, I think for some people, they they kind of take their interpretation of the Bible and then say, well, if that doesn't quite line up with science, maybe the Bible's wrong. Or their interpretation of scientific data, even scientists, and say, well, if that doesn't line up with my interpretation of the Bible, well, maybe, you know, the, the Bible and, and science don't work together here. But a lot of it is interpretation, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. Uh, historically, Christians have talked about the two books. There's the metaphorical book of nature, that would be science, history, all of the areas of learning and knowledge in the book of scripture. Those, those two books, one a metaphorical book, the other a literal book, they can conflict, but, it, but uh, a Christian perspective would be, if both of those books are written by the hand of God, if they're interpreted properly, they're going to cohere. And uh, so it is possible we might misinterpret the book of nature, and the book of nature might give us suggestion that we might be misinterpreting an aspect of the Bible. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so so much of it really is wrapped up in our in our interpretation. Um, right. Well, let's move on to the next section, which is relevance, the relevance piece. Yeah. Um, these next two sections really are where most people today in the 21st century begin when they start to ask big questions about the Christian faith. Yeah. Um, speaking in the public square, what would you say is the top question that Christians should really be ready to discuss in terms of that relevance piece? Yeah, I I, I think in many ways in history, Mikhail, Christians kind of look through the prism of what I would call truth, goodness, and beauty. Now we often look, our society looks at reality in terms of race, gender, and class. Hmm. And so issues uh, issues relating to the sanctity of human beings. I mean, has Christianity been good for racial minorities? Has Christianity been good for women? Um, is is Christianity a, a, a you know an oppressive force in the world, or has it been good in terms of liberating people? So I, I think those cultural questions are right at the fore. Uh, the question of race and slavery would certainly be one of those, but but also how God dealt in the Old Testament with various groups, that tends to come up frequently. Mm-hmm. Well, how would you, let's go there, since you mentioned those those two things, let's talk about the slavery piece. Yeah. Um, how would you, well, first of all, what question do you get in relationship to slavery and the Bible, and then how do you respond to that? Yeah. Well, one that's a a very sticky topic is why doesn't the Bible condemn slavery? And uh, what I do in that chapter is I say, look, um, the leading abolitionists in history who wanted to abolish slavery both in Europe and in America were by and large Christians. And one of the profound arguments that they brought against slavery is that all human beings are made in God's image and have dignity and have value, and that includes all of the races of people. You know, th- there are there are questions uh, that people raise about uh, the bond servant or the indentured servitude in the Old Testament, and I try to point out very clearly that uh, Yahweh in the Old Testament there is what we call indentured servitude. It was it was 
more of an emphasis on on economics than it was enslaving people. But I think what we find is the Old Testament really uh, uh, modifies and uh, draws attention to the dignity of human beings. Uh, Mikkel, I I think many of the debates we have today come down to um, how can we defend the idea that human beings really do have dignity and they have value? I think that I think the Christian or biblical perspective is very powerful that human beings have dignity because they're made in God's image, and and therefore therefore we need to treat people fairly. We need to treat people graciously, regardless of their skin color, regardless of their sex, regardless of whether they're rich or poor, they're sick or well. Um, human beings have dignity. And, um, and of course, what I raise with my secular friends is this. If, if you don't believe in God and therefore don't believe in the image of God, how do you, how do you condemn slavery? Yeah, it's interesting. There is no naturalistic equivalent to the image of God. Uh, there just isn't. There's there's nothing that separates us from animals or any other um, organism if if uh, naturalism is true. And what tends to be ignored in those uh, conversations about the Bible are uh, laws against anti you know anti kidnapping laws in the Old Testament, for example. The way that Christians were to treat uh, people of all backgrounds, even uh, people who were slaves. And that there was a time where the Romans hated Christians because they were pro-slave, pro-women, and uh, they just thought too highly of people in the Roman mind. And so, um, oftentimes people just ignore these these parts of Christianity. Um, when you see in, in the scriptures, Jesus, or rather God is in the Old Testament, um, creating this trajectory where he is uh, elevating um, uh, the human being from the, the cultural situation that they are in. And um, there, that, so that's definitely a very uh, nuanced and sometimes sticky discussion, but Christians definitely should be able to uh, at least begin to have that conversation with people that affirms the dignity of all human beings, and that, that's in the Bible. And, and Mikkel, some historians would say that the two largest people groups that joined Christianity almost immediately were women and slaves. They saw something in the Christian gospel that they didn't see in the Greco-Roman world. Uh, they, they, they saw a God that had sent his son into the world and uh, that, that Jesus related to women and slaves very differently. So, yeah. Now, we've done a world religion series on this podcast before. We took a look at a variety of worldviews, uh, Muslim uh, people, um, Sikh, Sikh, uh, yeah. Sikhism, we talked about that. Uh, we talked about uh, people from no faith, um, atheists, and we asked the question uh, that we hope that every Christian would ask their their friends who see Christianity differently. Um, questions like, what is the draw to this faith for those who are converts? Hmm. Two, what keeps people loyal in these systems? And then three, how does the gospel speak into that space? Because there are these universal human longings that we can find in um, world religions, even in, uh, you know, all kinds of storytelling, visual storytelling, movies, literature. Yeah. And so uh, to engage with those things, um, talk about how Christianity explains these kinds of uh, universal human longings, say, versus naturalism or pantheism. Yeah, I find this very powerful. This is kind of the last chapter of my book, and I, I really talk very personally about it, that I, I was drawn to, uh, 
you know, w- w- my my brother, after a long period of uh, uh, troubled with psychological issues and drug addiction, my brother took his life. And I remember being a teenager thinking to myself, um, you know, I don't have much more meaning than he had. And it bothered me that I I really couldn't offer him. That led me to to think very de- deeply about what is it about human beings? We, uh, you know, we long to live forever. We we desire uh, fulfillment and satisfaction in life. We're we're looking for something to to worship. Uh, C.S. Lewis, of course, uh, in light of people like Blaise Pascal and Saint Augustine, they lay out the idea that we're made for God. We were created to know and love God. When the fall comes along and we're separated or alienated from God, we go looking for something else to fulfill us. Uh, but the reality is that um, you know, uh, sex and uh, money and fame. None of those seem to kind of fulfill it. And so somebody like a C.S. Lewis would say that uh, we have these desires. Typically, when you have a desire like hunger, well, there's food. If you you hunger for drink, there is water. Uh, You have sexual desires, there is uh, sex. And of course, within a Christian context, sex within marriage. But we also have these other kind of longings for significance, for meaning. Uh, to live forever. Uh, I, I think there's a rather existential, if you will. And the argument is that if if God exists, and if Jesus is the Son of God, then those human desires uh, would be there because we're both made in the image of God and we're fallen. Um, and I don't think that naturalism or even the other religious worldviews of the world do a very good job of explaining what I would call the human condition. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about the the uh, goodness piece now, because this is another one that is a major uh, driving force in the kinds of questions that people ask today. Um, and this kind of, there's a little bit of overlap between that relevance and goodness, right. I think, um, in terms of the, the issues that you had raised earlier. But what would you say is the top question that Christians should be ready to discuss in terms of goodness? Yeah, I, I really think that people want to know, well, how has Christianity been good? What what has Christianity done for the world, if you will? And uh, I think there there's a lot of things we can we can say about uh, historic Christianity. I mean, yeah, there have been troubling things in church history. Uh, there have there have always been Christians who have said one thing and done another. Uh, after all, uh, Christian people are still human and they're fallen, they're broken. But I think that Christianity has had an extraordinary influence uh, on the world. Uh, again, thinking about the ancient world, um, it was the early Christians that uh, created orphanages. It was early Christians who created hospitals. It was the early Christians who said marriage is a sacred thing and children are important. I mean, the Greeks, you could uh, abandon your children. Men could have as many women as they wanted. It was 
Christian moral values that said human beings matter. Even the term hospice, Mikhail, it's a, it comes from a Christian context. Maybe we can't heal everybody, but we can comfort them and care for them in, in their death. I think of education. I mean, we talked a bit about science. Well, where did those universities come from that propelled the scientific revolution? Mm -hmm. They were medieval universities like Oxford and Cambridge, the University of Paris. I, I even think of the time of the Reformation, Mikkel, and, um, you know, concepts such as economics and liberty, that human beings, I mean, when Jefferson talked about uh, people having uh, value and uh, having rights, I think by and large that comes from a, a Judeo-Christian view of, of human beings. We could talk about literature, philanthropy. Um, yeah, there are problems in Christian history, but there's no doubt that Jesus is the most consequential figure in history and that Christian Christianity has shaped many of the the best and, and uh, most eloquent elements of Western civilization. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. You, we, we owe so much to Jesus and his followers, even if you're of no faith, um, to think about from art, literature, music, uh, the yeah. scientific uh, things that you had talked about, uh, medicine. Um, so much of that goes back not only to just the work of Christians, but the ethos of Jesus for caring for marginalized people, for the sick, for people who can't take care of themselves. Um, and it's not so much that we, we're saying, well, Christianity has done more good than evil or to kind of like balance it out or try to weigh it in some kind of, a, uh, you know, incremental or statistical way. But I love how John Dixon uh, points this idea out that the more people are adhering to the teachings of Jesus, the more beauty that you see in the world and society and, and that human flourishing, right? So it's not that Christians have never done anything evil, but those those evil actions that we see are deviations from the teachings of Jesus. And I, I, I walked into a Catholic hospital a couple of years ago, St. Jude here in Southern California, in the lobby in large letters, Matthew eleven twenty-eight. 28, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Mm -hmm. that, that influence has been a very powerful one and a wholesome one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, you have a chapter on the question, why are so many Christians not like Christ? And mm. for many Christians who are beginning to deconstruct their faith, it's because of hypocrisy that they've seen in the church. It's because of a bad experience they had where a Christian, sometimes a Christian leader, has hurt them or um, done some horrible thing to them. Uh, how would you counsel a Christian now who's beginning to deconstruct their faith because of these kinds of concerns? Well, one, I, I, I want to be sympathetic to them. I mean, um, I've experienced difficulties in, in churches I've attended, but I, I would want to remind people, remember what the Bible says about human beings. Human beings are fallen. Human beings are broken. Even, even Christians, uh, they're part of salvation. Uh, they may be forgiven in a moment by God's grace, but this process of rebuilding their lives called sanctification, it's, it's a long one and, an, and a difficult one. Uh, I want to remind people that people are broken and fallen. Uh, now, 
there, I identify two types of hypocrisy. One is a lowercase hypocrisy, which means that all of us make uh, all of us sin and need to repent of our sin, maybe to apologize to people. But there is hypocrisy with a capital H, and that's that's terrible. That's when Christians are living a double life. They may not be Christians at all. But, Mikkel, what I try to help people with is, you know, Mikkel might step on your toes, Ken Samples might step on your toes, but Jesus won't. He will not. He was and is not a hypocrite. And at least within Christianity, when Christians violate the law of God, it's very clear that what they've done is not consistent with Scripture or consistent with Christ. In a secular context, what standard do you have? What, what standard do atheists need to live up to? What, how would you judge a hypocrite within the naturalist worldview? So, it's true. Um, you know, Christians can be difficult. Christians can—you can go to a church and have people— st- you know, walk all over you. But I, I encourage people to to be realistic. I encourage people to recognize that, uh, you know, all of us are that way, and we all need God's grace. Definitely. We need God's grace every day, no matter if you've been a Christian for one day or uh, 50 years, or if you're not a Christian, uh, we all are in need of God's grace and forgiveness. And um, I think one thing to suggest as well as people do uh, what you just said is also to consider what they're going to, because they're deconstructing one set of beliefs about their early beliefs about God, let's say. For what? For atheism? For naturalism? Well, let's deconstruct that. And let's see, what are you going to? We had a, a show uh, with Mary Jo Sharp called uh, Deconstruction and Hypocrisy and Keeping the Faith. And our viewers and listeners can check that out too, because that whole show goes into this very uh, question and kind of expands on it. So uh, in, in closing now, let's turn to the church and how can pastors, ministry leaders, youth pastors, how can we better help equip Christians in each of these areas in our churches? Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, I, I want to encourage pastors to recognize that sometimes intellectuals have a hard time fitting in the church. I mean, we're often thinking about uh, non-believers or we're appealing to various groups of people. Um, I, I want to encourage pastors to address issues of the mind, the life of the mind, how important it is to, to think carefully and, and critically. So introduce, maybe, maybe have a, a, a logic class, a critical thinking kind of component. I, I, would, I would also want to tell them that, uh, but it's not all about truth. It, it is also, I, I think Tim Keller said it well. He says, you, 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 in his experience, you have to want to believe before you can believe. I would encourage pastors to also talk about why Christianity has been good and that it is relevant, that questions about gender and sexuality, uh, questions about about race, uh, questions about, uh, you know, oppressors and oppressed, I think these are all issues that the Bible uh, addresses. And so, in their sermons, um, I, I would encourage them to, to think about that. Is is Christianity rational? Is it relevant to my situation? And has it been a good thing? Um, I, I think that will that will hit a lot of people's interest. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, something else we talk about here at the Hendricks Center is uh, how Christian education in general has done a good job of helping to train uh, future pastors and ministry leaders to go from the Bible to life. But we need to be just as good at training people to go from life back to the Bible. And so that is where a sermon can, you know, it could be a sermon that's that's straight up exegetical, but to start with a situation, an issue of the day, and show how that ties back in, how the gospel speaks into that space. So, yeah, that's, that's a good thought. Well, uh, Ken, how can people get in touch with you if they're interested in learning more? Yeah, well, at Reasons to Believe, you can go on our website, reasons.org. My book is there. There's a a lot of good resources about apologetics and particularly uh, science and faith issues. Awesome. Well, if you want to continue the conversation with me as well, you can at me on Twitter at ApologeticsGuy. I'm also ApologeticsGuy on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. So love to continue the conversation with you. Um, Feel free to reach out to Ken and me, and um, we'd love to continue interacting with you. Well, Ken, thank you so much for being on the show. We appreciate it. Oh, it's a pleasure. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much. And we thank you so much, too, for joining us on the Table Podcast today. Please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or wherever you happen to be listening uh, or watching this content. Um, It really does help people discover the show and uh, help us produce more content like this. So thanks so much for being with us. We hope you'll join us next time here on the Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture. For listening to the Table Podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth, love well.